And I just want to give a, a special thank you to these guys uh, and, and gals that you saw up here, to Chris and to Crystal and to Niall for their willingness to come and to serve and to lead us in worship even, even though we are, well, all of you but us are, are probably in your homes and uh, in the midst of uh, a, a lot of change that they came and, and, and shared their gifts that God has given them to make much of his great name. And so we pray that that was an encouragement to you. Um, thanks for the, all those folks who texted me that said that the audio was a little tweaked at the start, but we fixed it. We got it, we got it uh, corrected. Uh, we're going to be in Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. We're going to be reading through chapter 2. Verse 5, so Habakkuk 1, beginning in verse 5, and we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. God says, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Habakkuk responds to this in verse 12 and says, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment, my rock. You destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like the, the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook. Catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. This is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and, continue, and continually slaughter nations without mercy? Now chapter 2 verse 1. I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. 
He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. And like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we dive into this text and God, and enter into this conversation between you and Habakkuk, I pray that we would would learn some lessons about how it is that we respond, God, when you act and we just don't understand. Well, good morning again, New Breed. It is good to be back with you through this live stream this morning to examine the Word of God with you. And again, I am so thankful that we are able to share what is unique. We are able to share this time together, even though I don't know about you, but even these two Sundays apart have made me miss and long for our time together. I miss hearing your voices singing praises to God. I miss being able to see on your faces when the word of God strikes you in a particular way. And I am praying and pleading that we will be together again soon. But this morning, we wanted to actually jump back into our series through the book Uh, The series in the book of Habakkuk is entitled God's Justice in an Unjust World. And there are two reasons we made the decision to jump back into this series. The first reason is because we believe that even though we're not able to meet together, God is still sovereign and this is the series that he had put on our hearts to preach, to preach through this book of Habakkuk. And we believe that it's still what he wants us to do. But second, and again, this points to the sovereignty of God in an incredible way, we believe that this message is a timely word for us in the current season that we are in as a church and as humanity as a whole. The title of this morning's sermon is When God Acts and We Don't Understand. When God Acts and We Don't Understand. Now let's be honest, many of us, even during the season we are currently in, uh, are are looking around in in somewhat of confusion and, and uncertainty. We are in the midst of a pandemic that is global, and it has caused many of us to question why would God allow this? Why hasn't God taken taken it away? Why does it seem like God isn't moving? But it's not just in terms of the pandemic. I think if if many of us are honest, we have found ourselves in moments and times and seasons in our life when when God has acted in a particular way and we just don't understand what He's doing. We don't understand why He's allowing things to happen the way that they are. Perhaps you have prayed for something that you believed was good and would have brought God glory and yet He said no. Uh, Perhaps God has led you into situations that you were not expecting, that you weren't prepared for, and you have no idea why He led you there. Perhaps you have asked God to work in a particular situation, and He did, but it was not at all the way that you expected. And, And if you're honest, maybe it left you a little disappointed. There are times, and there will be more times in this Christian life when God acts And we don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. And we as Christians have to think through how to respond in those times when God acts and we don't understand. How is it that we respond in a way that brings God 
glory. And the book of Habakkuk, specifically the text that we just read, helps us consider that very idea. So before we we get into our text this morning and start to kind of break down uh, uh, this idea of when God acts and we don't understand, let me recap bring it back to mind, uh, some of what we had mentioned about the book of Habakkuk when we started a few weeks ago. Uh, Habakkuk is a prophetic book, but it's unlike any other prophetic book. It relies on and reads more like Psalms and wisdom literature. Uh, Nevertheless, Habakkuk was a prophet, and this is considered a prophetic work. And he is writing during a time when injustice is all around. Where he he looks out and he sees injustice, and it's not just in in the world around him, but he also sees injustice among the people of God, among Judah. And so the book of Habakkuk allows us to kind of step in and observe conversation going on between Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk brings before God this need for justice, this this longing for justice. He sees the wickedness in Judah. He sees the injustice taking place. And he cries out for God to respond in verses 1 through 4. But then in verse 5, where we began reading a moment ago, God responds and says that he will deal with the injustice of Judah by raising up the Chaldeans, or you could say the Babylonians, to come and inflict terror and injustice on Judah. And Habakkuk struggles with this response. He struggles with this response beginning there in verse 12, and he basically asks God, How is this just? How is this right? How is this action that you are taking good? How is this an appropriate response to the injustice perpetrated by Jews? And beginning chapter 2, verse 2, God responds and calls Habakkuk to wait in faith for the work of the Lord. To wait in faith for the work of the Lord. And as we read this conversation going on between Habakkuk and God, there are some lessons that we learn in terms of this idea of when God acts and we just don't understand. I would argue that we begin to learn how it is to respond when God responds in this world and we just don't understand what he is doing. So here's the first truth that that I want to draw out from this passage, considering this idea of when God acts and we don't understand. Here's the first truth. We have to understand that God's actions don't have to make sense to us. We have to understand that God's actions don't have to make sense to us. Look there, chapter 1 Beginning in verse 5, he says, Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you would not believe when you hear about it. Look, he says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. When God acts, we don't have to understand. And this is, this is such a humbling truth for me that God's actions don't have to make sense to me because he basically tells Habakkuk, check this out, he basically tells Habakkuk in verse 5 that, that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. 
And God says, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. And we know that this is true because God proceeds to tell Habakkuk in verses 6 through 11 exactly what it is that he plans to do in raising up the Chaldeans to act as God's judgment and justice towards Judah. And Habakkuk doesn't understand. He cannot comprehend how this decision of God makes sense. And God tells him there in verse 5, even if I told you, you wouldn't understand because you can't understand. In essence, God is reminding Habakkuk, hear this, God is reminding Habakkuk that you are not me. You are not God. He is reminding Habakkuk that his, that's God's goodness and righteousness and holiness, do not depend on whether or not we see him as good and righteous and holy. God is God all by himself. Now now that's very important. I want to say that again. God is reminding Habakkuk that God's goodness and righteousness and holiness do not depend on whether or not we, his people, understand. Because too often in the Christian life, we try to make God fit into this box that we can explain. We, We try to make God fully explicable and it doesn't work. We try to dictate who God ought to be and how God ought to act based off of how we understand what is good and right and holy. But we fail because we should be letting our understanding of what is good and right and holy be shaped by who God is and what he does. See, we don't get to impress upon God our standards of goodness and righteousness and holiness. We understand what is good and what is right and what is holy because God acts and whatever he does does is the the epitome of what is good and right and holy and we forget that the very moral categories we have are because the image of God is imprinted on us even our understanding of what is good and what is right and what is pure though it is tainted by the fall our understanding is present because we are made in the image of God meaning that any sense we have of what is truly right flows out of the righteousness of God. And any sense we have of what is truly evil flows out of the absence of the righteousness of God. And we have to remember this. We have to remember this or we can create a God in our minds that is not actually God himself. If who God is and what he does has to fit completely into our realm of understanding, then he is not a God worth worshiping. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to understand God because he has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known. But we have to understand that there are aspects of who God is and his character and his actions that are just beyond our comprehension. And we can get ourselves into trouble with this church. We can get ourselves into trouble with this even in, our, even in our theology. You know, let me give you an example. So many people have read passages like Romans 9, 
where it says this, For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, listen to this, I raised you up for the reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And a few verses later in Romans 9, it says, or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor. And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared before hand for glory. And some people can struggle with this because their idea of who God is and what he should do doesn't match what scripture says, right? People will read that and be like, I just don't see God having mercy on who he wants, but hardening who he wants. I don't see God, the potter, taking this lump and making one for honor and one for dishonor. I don't see God using people to show off his wrath and anger and vengeance. I just, that, that doesn't make sense to me because it doesn't fit in my category of what is good. But the problem is we don't get to tell God what is right and good. He acts and he moves in this world and then we see what is right and what is good. And what that means though is that God's actions don't have to make sense to us. They don't have to make sense to us to be what is right and what is good and what is holy. And see, this is what was happening with Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 1.13, Habakkuk basically says, this does not make sense in terms of my understanding of goodness and justice. Habakkuk says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate th those who are treacherous? But this is what God wants him to believe. God basically says, Habakkuk, it doesn't have to make sense to you why this decision to raise up the Chaldeans is just and good and righteous. It doesn't have to make sense. But because I am doing it, Habakkuk, rest assured that it is good and it is right and it is holy. And church, some of us need this reminder even here today as we look at what is going on in the world around us. We look at the pandemic that we are all in the midst of and we ask, how could God allow this? And why has he not stopped it? And I think if some of us are honest, we would say that what God is doing here doesn't make sense. But where we rest is in the fact that he is God and we are not. He is doing something. And what makes it hard and often not make sense to us is that we don't know what he's doing. So all we can see is the here and now. But I want to remind you of, of the same truth that I spoke to you last week. That our God is the God of all creation who sits in the heavens and does as he 
pleases. This is the God that is sovereign over all creation because he spoke it all into existence. This is the God who was the same yesterday, today, and will be for all of eternity. This is the near us. This is the God who is near us. And he is not guessing how this will end because he exists outside of time. He has already orchestrated and allowed everything that will come to be. And this is the sovereign God of eternity who was and will always be good and righteous and holy. And we rest in that truth when this does not make sense. In some senses, we also, or in some sense, we also have to rest in the words of Isaiah that he declares in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, as God speaks, and for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. God reminds us in Isaiah that He doesn't think like us. He doesn't act like us. Nor does He have to. But let me say this as well. Though God's actions at times won't always make sense to us, it does not mean that we cannot ask God hard questions. And this leads to the second truth this morning. When God acts and we don't understand, it is okay to ask God the hard questions. When God acts and we don't understand, it is okay to ask God the hard questions. Look again at verses 12, verses 12 through 17. And this is Habakkuk's response in light of what God has just told him. Habakkuk says, are you not from eternity, Lord my God, my Holy One? You will not die, Lord. You appointed them to execute. could say, Lord, you appointed them to execute justice. He goes on, he says, my rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? I want you to to notice something. I, I don't want you to miss this. In this response, Habakkuk asks God some tough questions. Look at verse 13 again. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Here comes a question. He says, so why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Followed by another question, why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? And he asks another difficult question in verse 17 when he says, will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? And notice this, nowhere in the text of Habakkuk will you see God condemn Habakkuk for asking those hard questions. 
God doesn't condemn him for asking those questions. We can ask God the hard questions. When we look around this world and we see evil and we see injustice, there is nothing wrong with asking God why he is tolerating it. Why he allows racial injustice to continue. Why he allows economic injustice to continue. Why, God, do you allow injustice to exist? There is nothing wrong with asking God why he allows hardship to come upon you. There is nothing wrong with asking God why he has allowed this pain and this struggle and this sorrow in the midst of your life in this moment. There is nothing wrong with asking God those questions because he is big enough to handle them. But, but, but you see, the problem typically is not the question. The problem is often the posture. Let me, let me say that again. The, the problem typically is not the question. Or the questions that you ask God. The problem is often our posture. You see, the the way we ask the questions of God makes all the difference. The heart behind the question matters. Let me, let me try to give you two examples so you can see this and also see God's response. So, so one, one, I want to I reiterate Habakkuk. I want to kind of look at him and his questions, but I also want to compare him with Job. So, so, so let's look at Habakkuk in the midst of uncertainty. We see some incredible things about his posture toward the Lord as he asks those very difficult questions. But, but look at his posture. In verse 12, he says, my holy one, my rock. In, in verse 13, he speaks of God's holiness. And in verse 14, he speaks of God as the sovereign creator of mankind. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we see that he is waiting for the Lord before he acts. You see, even as Habakkuk asks these questions, there is a sense in which he does so with a proper view of who God is in mind. He asks these questions not in a condemning nature. He's not condemning God of wrongdoing when he asks these questions. He is not accusing God of making a mistake. They are genuine requests for understanding. So that he is requesting that he can see things as God sees them. But his posture, his heart is one of understanding that, that God is the Holy One. That he is, he is our rock and our shelter and our safe place. He is the God who is holy. He is the God who is sovereign over creation. And he is the God who dictates when we move. And so he comes and asks these questions out of a posture of humility. And what we notice is that God responds in a unique way. And we will talk a little bit more about this in a minute, and then we'll talk about it in great detail next week, Lord willing. But God shows Habakkuk his heart. In light of the questions that Habakkuk asks, God doesn't directly answer them. He doesn't necessarily tell him why he's doing this. But what God does is he reveals his heart to Habakkuk. He reminds him of his heart towards the just and he reminds him of his heart towards the unjust and what he thinks and feels about it. And so God responds by showing Habakkuk his heart. But now let's consider Job for a minute. And many of you know the story of Job. Uh, So Job begins uh, and, and God makes a statement that to state, so, so, so uh, Satan comes before God, uh, and God looks at Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job? One of the scariest questions 
I think could ever be asked. Because God looks at Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And he basically says, listen, Job is blameless. He is upright. There is not a man like him in this world. And so Satan says, all right, God, I bet if you let me take away his stuff, he will curse you. And so God says, you know what, go ahead, do it, but don't touch a hair on his head. And so, so Satan, basically through, through, through means of nature and, and other means, he, he takes away Job's children, he takes away Job's house, he takes away Job's livelihood, he takes away Job's servants, which are the means by which he could ever get any of that stuff back. He takes away all of his possessions, and still Job does not curse God. And so Satan goes back before God. And he says, the only reason he's not cursing you is because he has his health. Let me afflict him, and he will surely curse you. God says, do as you wish, but don't take his life. Don't take his life. And so he afflicts Job with physical trial and with boils and with sores on his body. And initially, Job holds on. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The name of the Lord be praised. He holds on, and he continues to worship God. And and Job holds on for quite some time. We don't know exactly how long. Could have been days, could have been months, could have been years. The Bible doesn't specifically say, but he held on. But there comes a point, and you start to see this turning point in Job 9, where where Job's questions of God stop stop flowing from a heart of humility and and, and start to, to come from a heart of condemnation where he begins to accuse God. Listen to what he says in Job 9. After much restraint, he finally blurts out what he's been thinking. And in Job 9 verses 22 through 24, he says, is all, it is all the same. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When catastrophe brings sudden death, he's speaking of God here. He says he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is handed over to the wicked. He blindfolds its judges and he poses his question. If it isn't he, then who is it? And in Job 30, as he continues on, Job says, I cry out to you for help. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. When I stand up, up, you merely look at me. You have turned against me with cruelty. You harass me with your strong hand. You lift me up on the wind and make me ride it. You scatter me in the storm. Yes, I know that you will lead me to death, the place appointed for all who live. Yet no one would stretch out his hand against a ruined person when he cries out to him for help because of his distress. And here he asks his questions. Have I not wept for those who have fallen on hard times? Has my soul not grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, darkness came. And even in Job 13, a passage where, where we like the beginning, we've made songs about the beginning, we've sung it, but I don't think we keep reading and understand the heart behind it. Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And that's a, that's a good statement. But it's an arrogant hope because of what comes next. He says, yet I will argue my ways to his face. He's speaking of God, remember. I will argue my ways to his face. And this will be my salvation. Not God. He says, this will be my salvation. That the godless shall not come before him. He says, keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. And Job says, I know that I shall be in the right. And then Job asks God this question. Who is there who can contend with me? 
Church, that is a bold question to ask the God of all eternity. Who, God, is there who can contend with me? And you see, Job's questions posed to God are ones coming from a posture of arrogance, where he is more or less accusing God of making mistakes. And before we jump down Job's throat, let's be honest, we have the temptation and the tendency to do the same thing. Some of us just aren't as bold as Job is in what we say. But I want you to notice God's response to Job and compare that with his response to Habakkuk. See, God's response to Job after Job has gone chapter upon chapter upon chapter of this thought process and leveling accusations against Job, God finally speaks in Job 38. And this is how it reads at the beginning. Then the Lord answered Job from the storm. If you want to get an understanding of God's tone, look at what he speaks out of. Then the Lord answered Job from the storm. And notice this, he never takes up any of Job's questions. He says, it says that God said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man when I question you. You will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And God goes on for chapter after chapter just asking these questions of Job. And what God is doing is He's not showing Job His heart. He's establishing His authority with Job. You see, when when Habakkuk was asking the hard questions of God from a posture of humility, he received an explanation from the heart of God. But Job, asking God the hard questions from a posture of ignorance, received a reminder of God's authority. God does not even deal with Job's questions. He just reminds Job that God is God and Job, you are not. You are not. Now here's why I tell you all of this church in the midst of struggle we can ask God the hard questions. When God acts and we don't understand what he is doing we can ask the hard questions. But we must understand our place. It is right to plead with God. It is right to ask him to change what is happening in the world right now. It is right to ask God why he is not intervening as people are dying, as people are struggling, as people are suffering. It is right to ask God hard questions, but we never accuse God of wrong. We never come into the presence of God with arrogant speech. We come with humility, believing that even though we don't fully understand everything he does, our God is sovereign and he is faithful and he is good. But let's keep this in the context of our series, right? We are thinking through this idea of justice, of God's justice in an unjust world. It is right to ask God hard questions regarding the injustice we see in the world around us. It is It is okay to ask him why he allows it and why he isn't changing it. It is okay to be heartbroken and to cry out to God from a broken heart, but it is never okay to accuse God of wrong. It is never 
okay to accuse God of inactivity, and it is never okay to approach God with a posture of arrogance as if we know what he should be doing, we see what's right, and he's making a mistake. But I do want to mention this. Just because we ask the questions from the right posture, just because we ask the questions with the right heart, it does not mean that God will answer. See, what's so interesting to me is both Habakkuk and Job wanted to know why. And in both cases, God never directly answers their question. I have come to believe Not that God can't do it or that he won't do it, but I have come to believe that God typically won't ask the existential or answer the existential why question because even if he did, we wouldn't be able to comprehend because we are not God. We are not timeless. We can't understand everything that he is doing. And though we are allowed and God delights in us asking the hard questions from a posture of humility, it does not guarantee that God will answer it. But church, I love what is coming next in the series because what we see in the five woe oracles that are to come is God actually revealing his heart towards injustice to Habakkuk. You see, the reason for this is because though God does not let Habakkuk fully know his plan and though God does not tell him why, he wants Habakkuk to trust his heart to be reminded that God is good and God is holy and God is just and this God hates injustice. He wants Habakkuk to know his heart and I'm reminded of the quote that I shared with you a while back from Charles Spurgeon when he said God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken and when we cannot trace his hand we trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hand, when we don't know what God is doing, when we don't have the why question answered, and our best guess just doesn't satisfy, and we don't know why God is allowing something or why he is working in this way, when we cannot trace his hand, we have to trust his heart. When God acts and we can't understand, and we ask the hard questions and God does not answer the why, And we cannot trace his hand. We trust his heart. But now the question becomes how? How do we do this? What does it look like to trust his heart? And this brings us to our third and final truth this morning. When God acts and we don't understand, we wait in faith. When God acts and we don't understand, we wait in faith. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where Habakkuk says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. For if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. 
Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all the nations and collects as his own peoples. And what we see here is a picture of waiting and a reminder of faith. You see, we see this picture of waiting in Habakkuk's response there in verse 1 where he says that I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk says, I will wait for the Lord. This does not make sense to me. I don't understand it. I don't get what is going on, but I will not move until the Lord responds. I will wait for him. And when God responds, he calls for Habakkuk to wait some more. Look at verse 3. He says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And God says that my plan will come to fruition. That justice will come. Righteousness will flow. Holiness will be seen. But it will not be on your timetable, Habakkuk. Wait for me. Wait for me. Oh, in church, so many of us need to hear this. I need to be reminded of this. Because so often we can look at what God is doing and we don't understand it or we don't agree. And so our response will be that we, we think that the most faithful thing will be to take measures into our own hands, to figure it out for ourselves if we feel like God is dropping the ball in church. That has never turned out well. I mean, consider Abraham for a minute. When God promised him and his wife that this child of promise would be born to them and they were getting up there in age and they just didn't believe that God was going to do it. They stopped waiting for the Lord. And so, so Sarah gives, gives Hagar, her servant, to Abraham to, to, to bear a child on their behalf. And there you have Ishmael. But that was not what God intended. That was not the child of promise. And, and there's a story about how that didn't turn out well. And they didn't wait for the Lord. They tried to take matters into their own hands. But church, our response to God must be one of waiting. We wait with faith. We wait with faith. Look at verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. See, our hope of God's justice in an unjust world will ultimately be made evident by our willingness to wait in faith. That is a big statement, church. Our hope for God's justice in an unjust world will ultimately be made evident by our willingness to wait in faith. Our waiting, though, will ultimately be dictated by our faith. I want you to see this. We are called to wait. We are called to wait in faith. But when we wait in faith, it does not necessarily mean inactivity. Because faith is both an attitude and an action. I love how one commentator explained it. One commentator I've been reading as we've been studying Habakkuk. And he wrote this. He said, faith, a position from which we approach life by understanding that righteousness comes only as God's gift, is the essential starting point. 
But this is to be matched with the continued faithfulness that trusts God even when our experience is for a time contrary to our expectations. Faithfulness that trusts God even when our experience is for a time contrary to our expectations. So so that's the attitude of trusting in God. Believing that everything that is good and right and holy flows from the very nature of God. And believing that that righteousness is a gift from God and justice flows from from God. And we will trust in Him even when what we're seeing doesn't match up with what we wanted. But, But there's also an action to faith. Justice while also recognizing and believing the full revelation of His justice is yet to come. In other words, we model that which we long to see, believing and understanding that it will not ultimately come to fruition in this world until Jesus comes back. And so church, though we see injustice, though we see struggle, though we see pain all around us, and we want to see it changed here and now, our faithful response is to wait in faith and trust that the God who is good, who is loving, who is holy, and who is sovereign will act in the appropriate time. So we wait in faith, believing that even when we don't understand what God is doing right now, His heart is one of goodness and righteousness and holiness and justice. In church, we have seen His heart. We have seen his heart in Christ Jesus where he sent his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins because left in our sins and left on our own, we were destined to die and spend eternity in hell. Yet God's heart was one of love and grace and mercy towards us. And so Jesus came and fulfilled the law perfectly and he didn't deserve to die. And yet he died in our place taking the full weight of God's wrath and anger and justice on Himself. He paid the penalty for our sins and He was buried and raised from the dead. And because of that death and resurrection, we are invited into fellowship with God. We are invited into to, to experience that love and that grace and that mercy of God by coming in faith and repentance. We believe that that is what God has done. That is His heart towards us. We have seen His heart in Christ Jesus. We know the heart of God made evident in Christ, so we trust Him. And perhaps, perhaps God appears to be slow in dealing with injustice. He, perhaps He appears to be slow in dealing with pain and struggle and trial. And we long to see it made right. But we wait. And we wait in faith believing God is still redeeming those who are unjust. And so it might seem slow, but perhaps God is doing something that we don't yet see. I'm reminded of what it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do we long for the salvation of the unjust? Do we long for the salvation of the wicked? But church, we have to remember that we can hope in the fact that God has shown His heart to be one of goodness and kindness and mercy. And that there will be times when God acts and we don't understand, and that's okay. And in those moments when we don't understand, 
It is okay to ask God hard questions. It's okay to plead with Him and to beg with Him, but we do it with the right posture. But ultimately, church, my prayer is that when God acts and we don't understand, we would be found waiting in faith, believing and trusting in the heart of God.